Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. Been listening to the president's press conference and to doctors Bricks and Fauci, our vice president, all fabulous people. I, I'm a little troubled by a few things, I have to just tell you. This number, 1.5 to 2.2 million people would have died without mitigation. This is a new series of numbers that were first presented to us this weekend. And they say they're based in part on what's taken place in Italy and the various models of projections that they have. Now, for me, it's not a matter of believing or disbelieving and so forth and so on. It's a matter of reading what's out there. I'm no expert, but I don't believe we were ever going to lose 1.5 million to 2.2 million people. Because the governors, the president, but even more importantly, our hospitals and medical experts were never going to just sit back and let this thing, quote unquote, wash through society. So I don't know why they put out this number, 1.5 to 2.2 million people, without mitigation. There was always going to be some kind of mitigation. I'll give you a perfect example, even in my own household. I forget exactly so much every day that we're being told and so much information to digest. And I do it right here behind the microphone with you. It wasn't that long ago. Was it two months ago, six weeks ago, whatever it was? Don't hold me to exact date. We were told these masks are useless. Don't get the masks. In fact, the only people who should wear these masks, I'm talking about the, the fiber masks, the cloth masks, were the people who were ill. Well, that was fundamentally wrong. And you know what? I'm no doctor, although I've seen some, that never made any sense to me. So we ordered some masks. And I gave some out to each of our children, and I kept some for myself, not hoarding them. They come in packs of 50. I have a pack of 50. I haven't used them yet. And this is like six weeks ago, Mr. Producer. Because what they were saying didn't make any sense to me. I refused to follow, quote-unquote, the science. I decided to follow my common sense. So for my own family, I was mitigating. I have two children who have very poor immune systems. And a wife who has a very poor immune system, quite frankly. I'm not going to get into their situations. I'm just telling you that. And so I felt we need some masks. 
Maybe I don't have enough masks. I don't know. I also felt we needed some gloves. I don't wear the gloves. I don't wear the mask. So about six or eight weeks ago, didn't overdo it. I walked into the local supermarket. It's called Giant here. And they have boxes and boxes of gloves. And I got three boxes for a total of 150 gloves. And gave them to the kids. Kept one box here. And they've almost used up their boxes of gloves. But nobody told us to get gloves. I'm telling you this for a reason. This is mitigation. This is what a family does. My Fox show and Levin TV. We didn't need to be told to scale down the crew and the staff. I knew to scale down the crew and the staff. For Levin TV and our studio, we're down to like five people. (laughs) And now we've even altered that. And I can't get into specifics, but we've even changed that. Not because the government told me to do it, because I knew I needed to do it for the sake of the crew and the staff and my sake. My wife and stepdaughter went to New Jersey and they brought my wonderful mother-in-law back to our home where we could be together and take good care of each other and take good care of her, quite frankly. And whatever she needs, we want to make sure she's protected. And look, us too. I've got a heart disease and I have asthma. I said my wife has a poor immune system as a result of something she has now. And my mother-in-law, we want to protect her too. So we made decisions, common sense decisions, based on the information that was available to us. I don't need governors telling me what to do. And you might say, well, Mark, that's you. I'm just making a point. This 1.5 million to 2.2 million people who would have died without mitigation should not be confused that 1.5 to 2.2 million people would have died but for the actions of government. Certainly a significant percentage of that, but I don't even believe these numbers, not because I'm a conspiracy nut, but because all of a sudden they're presented to us over the last few days, over the weekend, uh, and people say, well, there's more data. There's really, the projections were never any, anywhere close to that. And as a matter of fact, we've, we've cited a number of scholars and medical experts from Yale and Stanford and other places who also suggest that's 2.2 million, 1.5 million. That model came out of England. The modeler in England, who was an expert, said he was wrong. He talked about 2 million people dying in England, and then he... He brought it down to 20,000. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's a big difference. Follow the science. I'm getting, uh, you know, whiplash. And so now, uh, the experts are telling us that uh, it would have been 1.5 to 2.2 million people without mitigation. And as I point out, there was always going to be mitigation of some sort by governors, by hospitals, by doctors, by us, by the people. Now, that doesn't mean the number wouldn't have been high, or higher, proper term. But there was always going to be some kind of mitigation. And as I sit here and think about what's going on, you must stay in your homes. 
only essential people. People could be fined or arrested if they leave their homes. You cannot congregate in groups more than 10. In fact, in many places you can't congregate at all. And some of this is clearly understandable, Mr. Producer. But you know what this model reminds me of? The Chinese model. Without the Communist Party police state, of course, without the bullets and the, and the billy clubs and all the rest of it. What I mean is, what did they do? They forced people to stay home. They shuttered businesses. Now, they did a hell of a lot more than that. Don't get me wrong. Horrible, awful things that Xi Jinping and his regime do. But I mean, the model, technically, this mitigation model, without the communist you know, flavor to it, if you will, is the model everybody seems to be following. Segregation, quarantine, Um, stay at home. Now they want people, although it's not being ordered, to wear masks. Although I don't know where people are supposed to get masks from all of us. Wear masks, wear gloves. And uh, that sort of thing. And now they're today talking about the projections of 100,000 to 200,000 Americans dead, but if we really do a good job it should be less than that. I'm hearing the number in the media of 82,000. The president was apparently presented with behind closed doors. Is based on Italy and other models. Well, the Italy example really is a bad example because we talked about this on Life, Liberty, and Living on Sunday with Newt Gingrich that there were an enormous number of Chinese working in Italian factories in northern Italy, turning out Italian top brand names by companies that were owned by China and employees were working there, maybe 100,000 of them. And Italy, the Prime Minister of Italy did not do what the President of the United States did. The Prime Minister of Italy was very, very slow to secure his borders, and to control the the influx of Chinese workers into his country. In the United States, where per capita we don't have that kind of a Chinese workforce, our president was very quick to pull that trigger and secure the border. From Chinese visitors, tourists, workers, and all the rest. So I don't believe the Italian model is an appropriate model, and I don't know what these other models are. And she mentioned the imperial model, Dr. Bricks did. The imperial model was a complete disaster over the weekend. Now we're talking about the imperial. I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm trying to work this through with you. I mean, I'm, I'm an adequately intelligent human being trying to digest all this as you are. I don't claim to be an expert. Now we've done 1.1 million tests. I will notice that, and to their credit, the Fox newsroom has now changed its graphics. Have you noticed that, Mr. Producer? Have you really been carefully watching that? They have the two boxes, right? And the two boxes, they used to say, confirmed cases and confirmed deaths. And on Sunday's show, I said, this is incredibly misleading. And I'm talking about all the newsrooms doing this. I'm not picking on anybody in particular. All the newsrooms doing that, that is that it is very unhelpful 
and creates a lot of panic because people look at those two boxes and then they, they equate a percentage one to the other. That's not correct. So I noticed what Fox has done is they said at least such and so number of confirmed cases. And at least such and so number of deaths. The others haven't even done that. But that's not even exactly accurate. There still needs to be some kind of a statement, some kind of an asterisk, some kind of a footnote, something that says, in plain English, we have no idea how many people have this virus unless every person in America is tested. And we're now doing more to test people in any nation on the face of the earth thanks to our private companies, Abbott Labs and many other companies, many others, but Abbott Labs among others. So we will have a bigger and bigger and bigger number of people tested, which will show a larger and larger number pool of people who have or had the virus. And so you'll see the the percentage of fatalities will go down as a percentage of the people who had the virus overall. But what the media do is they don't explain this, so people get very, very panicked. I also want to use some other numbers to provide some context. And I, I provide this context not in the sense that I don't think you should be concerned about this virus. Of course you should. I've changed a lot of what I do. My family has too. I just told you some examples. You've got, to, you've got to protect yourself, and you've got to protect your family and other people. And unfortunately, the way you protect them right now is to be a loner. Just to put it simply, you need to be a loner, and your family needs to collectively be a loner. It's not that hard for me in that sense, although I do get stir-crazy easily if I'm not working on a book or have some purpose to be just at home. But I want to give you some context. When these numbers are thrown around, 100 to 200,000 might die in the United States based on Italy and other models. I would be very, look, I'm no expert, so I'm not making a prediction, but based on what I've been reading, I'd be very surprised if we hit that level. It's possible. So I went on the CDC site. They're the authority for all things health and medical, I suppose except when it came to the early tests, but let's put that aside. And the most complete final numbers they have is for 2017, they say. So I looked at 2017. How many people died from heart disease in 2017? 647,457. How many people died from cancer in 2017? 599,108, so 600,000. Next, Americans who died in accidents, 170,000. Chronic lower respiratory disease, 160,000. Stroke, 146,000. Alzheimer's, 121,000. And change, but... Diabetes, 84,000. Flu and pneumonia, 56,000. Nephritis, 51,000. And listen to this one. 
suicide in 2017. Suicide. Over 47,000 people killed themselves in 2017. That's what the president means when he says if you just push people out of work or destroy their businesses, we have issues with suicide. More when I return. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. If you and your family are finding yourself at home with extra time on your hands these days, I know an excellent way to fill it. Take a free online course from Hillsdale College. Hillsdale offers dozens of online courses on topics, including the U.S. Constitution, economics, history, and literature. Right in your own home, on demand, and absolutely free of charge. Hillsdale students learn the inspiring history of America. Now you can, too, with Hillsdale's newest free online course, The Great American Story, A Land of Hope. Learning and teaching our children about America's past is essential for preserving liberty in the future. Register right now to take this free online course, The Great American Story. It's a production masterpiece, and it paints a picture of America as a land of hope founded on high principles. This course and dozens of others on a variety of topics are available to you and your family for free right now. Go to levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. I meant to add, 47,000 people die a year from opioid overdoses. 34,000 people die a year from automobile crashes and accidents. None of us are going to escape this planet. I hate to tell you. None of us. Now, why am I talking like what, what? What the hell is Mark Levin getting at here? What I'm trying to do is give you perspective and context that the media are not giving you. And that these models have been swinging wildly. I'm not attacking anybody. I'm not trying to provoke anything. This is not ideological or political with me in the least. I want the best for everyone in this country, too. But I don't know how we got to 1.5 to 2.2 million people would die without mitigation, which is kind of absurd when you think about without mitigation, quote-unquote, to now we're 100,000 to 200,000 projecting based on what's happened in Italy and other models. Is that going to hold? Well, we don't know. Anyway, I'll be right back. If you and your family are finding yourself at home with extra time on your hands these days, I know an excellent way to fill it. Take a free online course from Hillsdale College. Hillsdale offers dozens of online courses on topics, including the U.S. Constitution, economics, history, and literature. Right in your own home, on demand and absolutely free of charge. Hillsdale students learn the inspiring history of America. Now you can too, with Hillsdale's newest free online course, The Great American Story, A Land of Hope. Learning and teaching our children about America's past is essential for preserving liberty in the future. Register right now to take this free online course, The Great American Story. It's a production masterpiece, and it paints a picture of America as a land of hope founded on high principles. This course and dozens of others on a variety of topics are available to you and your family for free right now. 
Go to levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. For liberal media bias, Mark Levin. Call him now at 877-381-3811. Now, let's move over to the economic side. And we'll revisit all this today and in the future. There seems to be the suggestion that if we hadn't spent the $2.2 trillion, that somehow that too would have affected the the rate of death. I, I think that's absurd. I don't know where that's coming from. And it concerns me a great deal because what is this country going to look like when this is over? These governors are going to have newfound powers. Or maybe they're not newly found, but they're newly exercised. And they're going to like it. Politicians like power. They like to bully you. Uh, The federal government's going to have a massive debt in addition to the massive debt that exists now. And the president actually tweeted today that he's thinking maybe we should spend another $2 trillion on infrastructure. Now my grave concern, and it is a grave concern here, is that in the midst of all this we're going to destroy our economy and destroy our economic system and create a massively powerful centralized government that's not even going to look like anything you previously imagined. And of course, Donald Trump won't be president forever. Somebody else will. And there's no need for this. Because the $2.2 trillion was not a stimulus bill. At least half of it had nothing to do with very much at all. And an infrastructure bill, this is perplexing to me. The governors, not the president, the governors are shutting down businesses. The governors are talking about who's essential and who's not. But then we're going to have a $2 trillion infrastructure bill because that's essential. I mean, there's a lot of contradictions going on here. We need liquidity in the economy, but stay home. Well, liquidity in the economy and a contraction of the economy, that is, less production because people are staying home, assembly lines are being shut down, restaurants are being shut down, airlines are not flying, creates massive inflation. Massive inflation means you can't buy a home, you can't pay your bills, your pension is worth less. And it's extremely difficult to put back in the box. And an enormous number of people are going to suffer because that's an attack on the currency. So anybody who has an American dollar is going to suffer when it comes to inflation. And all of our industries will suffer. All of them. Steel, coal, oil, automobile, consumer, all of them. This Inflation is something you want to keep in the bottle. So when you hear people say this $2.2 trillion, when you consider that 1.5 to 2.2 million people without mitigation would have died and 
So that makes the $2.2 trillion look rather small. One has nothing to do with the other. And I don't buy this model with the $1.5 to $2.2 million anyway. We'll never know. We'll never know. But it just popped up over the weekend. Check me out on this. Never heard of this. Well, the data's better. No, it's not. Italy? We're looking at Italy and other, and other models? I mean, the Chinese communist government has not only caused enormous, enormous damage to this country in terms of human casualties and deaths, and not just economic casualties, but they may have succeeded in changing the relationship between our government and our people. And this is what's concerning me. It's not necessary. We can go through a temporary period where people need to shudder. Social distancing. What is the vice president says? 15 days, follow the whatever. Now 30 days, follow the whatever. Okay, got it. That's 45 days. Do we have to destroy our economic system, massively empower the central government, so that when this is over, we don't even know what the hell the country looks like? This is Mark's concern. Maybe I'm the only one, but I think there's a few more. And uh, there's a great piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday by Mitt Saru and Luigi Zingales. The stimulus is the largest step toward a centrally planned economy that America has ever taken. Now I want you to keep a few things in mind. There's a few individuals out there who are great Franklin Roosevelt fans. They claim to be conservative. Some of them are friends with the president, influential in the administration. One of them is this guy, Conrad Black. I've never met him. He was a publishing magnate. I'm sure he's a very, very nice man. Although he can be quite vile and vicious, as a matter of fact. And he wrote a piece, it was today or yesterday, explaining, and he's done this before, he does it all the time, how Franklin Roosevelt has saved conservatism, saved capitalism. Wrote a whole book on it. It's delusional. So many experts have said, no, that's not exactly right. I've studied the man myself. And so the president's getting a lot of information, a lot of advice, if not directly, indirectly, through articles and so forth. And you hear people on radio and TV say, go big, go big, go big! And this is where you have the overlap between the democratic socialists, as they call themselves, and the nationalist populists, as they call themselves. In the end, they're all for big, powerful, centralized government. And whether it comes from nationalist populists or democratic socialists, it threatens your liberty. It threatens the nature of this government. Franklin Roosevelt, in so many ways, was a disaster for this country. As Milton Friedman pointed out, as others have pointed out, the Federal Reserve was a disaster. These governmental institutions, in many ways, could have done things that were helpful, but they went so far and were so radical, they damaged this society. And I'm not here to really get into Franklin Roosevelt right now. That's Conrad uh, Black's issue and obsession. It's not mine. Among others. But if you listen to what's going on over there, 
in the administration. You can see it's we need a massive infrastructure program. Now's the time. It was one trillion, one and a half, now it's two trillion. It'll put America back to work. We can do roads and bridges and and again on my social sites the commenters come in, not all of them this time, but enough of them. I think this is a swell idea. Right on top of the two point two trillion. So that's four point two trillion. Right on top of the four trillion in loans that the Federal Reserve has now been empowered to, uh, to issue. So that's $8.2 trillion. On top of the federal budget, which is another $4.5 trillion, so that's almost $13 trillion in one year. In an economy that was at least $18 trillion. So I'm here to declare fiscal conservatism is dead. It's dead. Limited constitutional government is dead. The vast majority of the American people supporting individual liberty is dead. Because if you're going to a Mark Levin social site and defending these things, well then I guess you're more Bernie Sanders than you know. I'm not talking about the vast majority of you and my audience. And here's the thing. It's not going to help. Why don't we embrace the things that grow the economy? Why don't we embrace the things that, that, that advance entrepreneurship and, the business, and building of businesses and employing people and, and, as I say, contribute to growth? Massive amounts of centralized government decision-making, throwing money at people, students or whatever, who don't need it or don't deserve it. That doesn't work. So they wrote, a surreal bipartisanship prevails in Washington. Everyone wants to spend, spend, spend. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who aggressively fought President Obama's 2009 stimulus package, was delighted the other day to announce a fiscal stimulus more than twice as large, and Democrats are pushing for more. Are we all Keynesians now? Or have we all embraced the so-called modern monetary theory, which suggests that when an economy is below its full potential, we can print money to finance any deficit without provoking inflation? No, the answer is much simpler. We are all experiencing the effects of combining a real crisis with powerful lobbying. With 20% of Americans locked in their homes, now it's a third, nearly all air travel canceled and the global supply chain disrupted, You don't need to be a Keynesian to think the government should intervene, but that doesn't mean the CARES Act, an acronym for Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security, is wise. The last thing we need at this moment is a Keynesian stimulus. Since We've talked about this in plain English. Since the lockdowns constrain supply, stimulating demand would lead only to the rise in prices. I keep saying this. This liquidity, you're pushing dollars, trillions and trillions of dollars into the economy when you're not increasing production. As a matter of fact, production is flat or slow or low. We're going to put another $2 trillion in? Besides helping the medical effort, government intervention should offer financial help to people who can't work. And it should preserve the production capacity of the American economy. The greatest resource most companies have is their 
teams of employees. If they dismantle those teams because of the pause in the economy, production capacity will be lower at the end of the pandemic. Only $377 billion of the $2 trillion, it's really $2.2, but all right, of the $2 trillion package is directly targeted to this goal. That means $1.623 trillion is not the vast majority of it. These are loans to small firms, fewer than 500 employees, which are forgivable if the funds are spent on payroll, rent, mortgage interest, and utilities. By using 2017 census data, the most recently available, we calculated the total expenditures in payroll, interest expenses, and rents of U.S. small firms, and that amounts to $258 billion a month. Unless the Trump administration introduces criteria for selective targeting, the money allocated under this bill will run out in a month and a half. And this is why now the president is saying maybe we need another $2 trillion. Designing the conditions for such targeting is easy since every requirement will slow the money's deployment and, and uh, speed is of essence. Thus, we fear the administration will soon come back to Congress with a new request for money. And the president tweeted out today that $2 trillion more sounds like a good number. And this is before even the Democrats get a hold of this. I'm very, very worried. I said to my wife several hours ago when I read the tweet, I said, I am now, now I'm fearful. They need to help individuals and small firms has provided cover to the largest corporate subsidy program in American history. Under intense pressure from lobbyists, the CARES allocates $510 billion to support loans for large businesses. A small chunk of the money, $56 billion, will be used directly by the Treasury to grant loans to airlines and other so-called strategic firms, like Boeing. Treasury will then confer the rest, almost half a trillion, to the Federal Reserve to absorb losses the Fed might incur in lending to firms in the private sector. The expectation is the central bank will leverage this money 10 to 1, enabling it to lend up to $4.5 trillion to companies. That sum is more than all U.S. commercial and industrial loans outstanding in America at the end of 2019, plus all the new corporate bonds issued during 2019. So if this capital is all deployed by the Fed, and at rates that will surely crowd out private capital, all capital allocation in America in 2020 will be done by the federal government, the Federal Reserve System, not by the capital market. And let me tell you what that also means. All these mortgage companies that employs Tens of thousands of people across the country. All these banks are going to go under. All these people will be without jobs. Because the private capital market will now be replaced by the central federal bank. This is the largest step toward a centrally planned economy the U.S. has ever taken. And Larry Kudlow has been very excited about this for reasons I cannot comprehend. And it socializes only losses. That is, you and I have to swallow the losses. Profits, when they come, remain private. I want to give you a little bit more information before we spend the next $2 trillion, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be right back. Lovin. If you and your family are finding yourself at home with extra time on your hands these days, 
I know an excellent way to fill it. Take a free online course from Hillsdale College. Hillsdale offers dozens of online courses on topics, including the U.S. Constitution, economics, history, and literature. Right in your own home, on demand, and absolutely free of charge. Hillsdale students learn the inspiring history of America. Now you can, too, with Hillsdale's newest free online course, The Great American Story, A Land of Hope. Learning and teaching our children about America's past is essential for preserving liberty in the future. Register right now to take this free online course, The Great American Story. It's a production masterpiece, and it paints a picture of America as a land of hope founded on high principles. This course and dozens of others on a variety of topics are available to you and your family for free right now. Go to levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Let me put it to you this way, America. You're patriotic. You're listening to your governments at the various levels, local, state, and federal. You're doing your part. Many of you have lost your jobs. Some of you are ill. Many of you have lost your business. And you have every damn right to demand that your government not destroy this economy when we get through this. You have every damn right to demand that this government get its spending under control. Focus on the ill. Focus on the needy. We got it. We understand. We're Americans. We want to help our fellow citizens. We really do. But we do not want to be taken advantage of. Not while we're huddling in our homes. Not while we're wearing masks and rubber gloves and using sanitizer. No. We damn well expect When we get through this, this horror that was projected onto this nation by the communist Chinese government, we expect our freedoms to be given back to us. We expect our capitalist system to be back in place. We expect these companies and these employees to be able to work their way back to where they were. And we do not expect the federal government to take over our capital markets. And we do not expect the federal government to take over any company. We are prepared to sacrifice. But we are not prepared to surrender. That we will not do. And I want all of you, millions of you, to stand with me. We're going to protect our families. We're going to protect our neighbors. We're going to protect our country. But we are not going to surrender our history and our constitution and our economic system to Washington, D.C. That we're not going to do. To a Federal Reserve Board. You can't even name the members of the Federal Reserve Board. Now they're going to be in charge of all of our capital markets. And $2.2 trillion, we're now told, not a big deal when you consider that 2.2 million may have died without mitigation. Sorry, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. And Washington needs to hear from you. Washington needs to hear from you. You cannot be a mere observer. This is your country. This is your future. We want to win the war against the virus. But we don't want to destroy the homeland, too. I'm sorry. 
We need our liberty and we need our rights returned to us when this is over. And I don't want to turn around where the Federal Reserve is more powerful than ever before. Where Nancy Pelosi in Congress is more powerful than ever before. And all of a sudden, we do our duty. We do what's expected of us to save our fellow man. And then we lose our liberty. No. I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Finishing this article, there's not much left, but I want you to have the full understanding of what these gentlemen have written. Just to recap slightly. They say the need to help individuals and small firms has provided cover to the largest corporate subsidy program in American history. Under intense pressure from lobbyists, the, this bill allocates $510 billion to support loans for large businesses. A small chunk of the money, $56 billion, will be used directly by the Treasury to grant loans to airlines and other strategic firms like Boeing. The Treasury, this is Mnuchin, who's a liberal Democrat, a Goldman Sachs guy, a Hollywood guy. I don't like him. But he's not my pick, you know, it's up to the president. The Treasury will then confer the rest, almost half a trillion, to the Federal Reserve to absorb losses the Fed might incur in lending to firms in the private sector. So the expectation is that the central bank, that is the Fed, will leverage this money 10 to 1 enabling it to lend up to $4.5 trillion to companies. That sum is more than all U.S. commercial and industrial loans outstanding to all companies in America at the end of 2019, plus all the new corporate bonds issued during 2019. In other words, what they're saying is, now the federal government, through the central bank that is the Federal Reserve, will control 100% of the capital. If this capital is all deployed by the Fed, and at rates that will surely crowd out private capital, all capital allocation in America in 2020 will be done by the Federal Reserve System, not by the private capital market. And the thousands and thousands of jobs that will be lost, by the way. This is the large, and by the way, that means the Federal Reserve will set policy. This is the largest step toward a centrally planned economy America has ever taken. And it socializes only the losses. In other words, if they give out bad loans, because it's the taxpayer who's giving out the loans, that's what the Federal Reserve is, uh, it's your loss. On the other hand, when companies are profitable as a result of these loans, they remain private. So it's a disaster. And they go on, there needs to be far more transparency, governance, and accountability around the Fed's deployment of trillions of dollars in the real economy. 
Policymakers also should make the $510 billion program for large companies similar to the small firms, but with tougher conditions. Again, using 2017 census data, we calculated the total expenditures in payroll, interest expenses, and rent of all U.S. companies to be $392 billion a month. But not all large companies are idle. Amazon's doing great. Google and Facebook, great. Overall, large businesses are likely to be less hard than the U.S. economy overall. Goldman Sachs forecast 24% drop in this coming quarter, even if the large companies were hit in proportion to the overall downturn. The cost of replacing their wages, rents, and interest would be only $94 billion a month. So the $510 billion would last about half a year. The urgency of the moment facilitated a giveaway to vested interests. Now that the CARES Act is law, policymakers need to find ways to impose restrictions on the money as deployed. It's only a question of fiscal prudence and the nature of American capitalism at stake. Mr. Suru is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business. By the way, Stanford has really been stepping up doing this. And a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Mr. Zingalis is a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And so forth. Does that concern you? That the federal government, through the Federal Reserve Board, is taking over the private capital markets? Where the federal government then has enormous say in these corporations. Does it concern you that they're talking about and they would also take equity positions in major American corporations like the airlines? The federal government. Does it concern you that less than $400 billion of the $2.2 trillion really directly affects, directly, people who've lost their jobs? And now they want 2.2 or $2 trillion more for the president's talking about it. For infrastructure, of course. And the governments at all levels, they never waste money on infrastructure, do they? Oh, yes, yes, we want pathways and bikeways and every boondoggle idea these guys have. And what they'll do is point to a tunnel or a bridge that collapsed. As if we don't have states and localities with massive property taxes and massive state income taxes. It's like the ventilator issue. Nobody's asked Cuomo in all these press conferences I've watched, Mr. Governor, why the hell didn't you order more ventilators over your long time as governor? Why did you choose solar panels over ventilators? Please tell us. And doesn't that cost lives? And will every person in New York who needs a ventilator have a ventilator, or will they not as a result of your actions? Why don't they ask him that? They're not going to. It's an excellent piece in National Review Online. It's excellent because, of course, we've talked about it, but I like the way Rich Lowry has it there, the boss over there. He says, Trump critics and the media whipped up entertaining controversies when they had the luxury to do so. Now a real crisis is here. On January 21, January 21, this year, the United States confirmed its first case of coronavirus. The nation's political immediate elite obsessed over Mitch McConnell's just-announced resolution governing the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. You remember I was the first to point out what Congress was doing when this virus first broke out. But let's continue. He's got great dates here, too. On January 23, China locked down the city of Wuhan. Cable news in America lit up with praise for the epic 
nay, historic performance by House impeachment manager Adam Schiff in the trial's opening arguments. January 30, the World Health Organization declared a world health emergency, but the U.S. Senate prepared to vote on impeachment witnesses. On February 5, the cruise ship Diamond Princess quarantined thousands of passengers after a major outbreak on board. Mitt Romney announced that he'd vote to convict Trump on one of the two counts against him, and the Senate voted to acquit on both. Who got attention? Mitt, of course. And if the Senate, and I've pointed this out many times, he says if the Senate had approved additional impeachment witnesses, the trial would have stretched into February at least, overlapping even more with the epidemic. Trump closed off travel from China while the trial was still ongoing, the day after senators asked their final questions of the impeachment managers of the White House defense team. Only two and a half weeks after the trial, the White House requested $1.25 billion in emergency coronavirus funding from Congress. If the trial hadn't ended expeditiously, the Senate easily could have been still seeking the testimony of, say, former White House counsel Don McGahn about the details of the non-firing of special counsel Robert Mueller, at the same time that everyone expected the administration to be shifting into wartime footing against the virus. In that circumstance, the impeachment trial obviously would have been immediately shelved because a discretionary national crisis can't compete with a real, unavoidable one. Political melodrama must give way to a potential public health catastrophe. Purportedly historic events that were going to be forgotten within weeks can't compare with days that generally might define our era. We've talked about this. For more than three years, American national politics has been constantly on a crisis footing over presidential tweets, two-day controversies, and dubious storylines whipped up by the media and Trump's genuine outrages. Little of it has been enduring, or nearly as important as the intense wall-to-wall tension at any given moment suggested. Trump and his opposition have been engaged in a performance dance of mutual animosity that is angry, hysterical, and ultimately inconsequential. The Mueller probe constituted the tentpole of this period for years. It drew wishful comparisons to Watergate in the media, but it came up empty, since its premise of a Trump conspiracy with the Russians was always a progressive, what is he right here, phantasmagoria? Well, you got me on that one, Rich. After all the energy devoted to inflating the Russians into a clear and present danger to the workings of America, here are our shores. That threat has instead proved to be China, which loosed a virus on the world, has temporarily crashed the American economy, and shut down much of American life, including elections. After we spent months pretending that Trump would somehow be ousted from the presidency by his own party in the Senate. Not only is he still the president, all people of goodwill are rooting for him to perform as ably as he can in this crisis. And it goes on briefly. Points I've raised, but I like the fact he's got dates in here too. And now how dare these Democrat members of Congress point a finger at Trump that he should have acted earlier. I don't know what else he could have done. I don't know, what, what else could he have done? It's really quite unbelievable. And then there's a piece in the Washington Examiner by Edie Scary. Trump's not scaring people about the coronavirus. The media are. Any White House reporter who insists on asking the president 
whether something he said has alarmed people should first be asked to explain the running tally of deaths and infections that cable news keeps plastering on everyone's screens. Again, something we've been talking about here. A Bloomberg reporter at Sunday's press briefing asked President Trump whether he, quote, may be frightened some Americans by suggesting in a tweet that New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut may need a federally mandated quarantine. At a separate press briefing two weeks ago, NBC's Peter Alexander asked the president if his impulse to put a positive spin on things may be giving Americans a false sense of hope and misrepresenting the preparedness right now. That was in reaction to Trump expressing hope that a particular existing drug might work as a treatment against the new coronavirus when there was evidence to suggest that, yes, it does. She says, I understand critical reporting, but if anyone is guilty of scaring the public, it's the national media. They've reported on this pandemic and the administration's response as though it were something out of the book of Revelations. Every single death is characterized as an avoidable tragedy, something that we should have been able to stop if not for an inept president. In fact, the experiences of many countries not led by Trump has been strikingly similar. The truth is that no one, not the president, not scientists, and certainly not the media, has a firm grasp on what will happen with the coronavirus. So far, we've identified trends and how it affects people, and we have some projections about how bad things will get, but that's about it. The virus tends to sicken the elderly and those who have compromised immune systems the most severely. Those are the patients most likely to die from the illness, though the numbers as of this moment suggest that among those infected, Less than 2% may die. Actually, the numbers suggest less than 1%. It's a very good piece, and she goes on with more details. But let me say this before I take a break. Over 99% of you who get this virus, over 99% of you who get this virus will survive. Did you hear what I said? Over 99% of you who get this virus will survive. My question is, will our economy, will capitalism, will our constitution, that over 99% of you will survive? I do not downplay this virus and its seriousness, particularly to the populations that have been identified where it's most severe particularly to the metropolitan areas that are suffering, particularly for the need of various equipment and personnel, absolutely crucial. But over 99% of you will survive, despite the numbers on your TV screen. And those numbers are still misleading. They're still misleading. I'll be right back. Lovin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? 
Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. After the bottom of the hour, I want to say something about President Donald J. Trump and his handling of this virus. So you'll want to tune in, I think. I want to say something about the president. And from my perspective, somebody who worked for Ronald Reagan and so forth, how he's handled this virus. You know, the Media Research Center has been leading the war against dishonest news for over 30 years because the American people deserve the truth. That's why the work of the Media Research Center, MRC we like to call them, and their video team at MRC TV is so important. They expose the media's lies and make sure you see the videos the liberal media don't want you to see. And you can learn a hell of a lot more about them. That is MRC at MRCLevin.org, MRCLevin.org. MRC TV produces original commentary and videos of the news, people, and events that we conservatives care about. One of the recent videos exposed the media's dishonesty on the Chinese coronavirus. You'll remember this. They put together the clips of the media calling it the Chinese Wuhan virus, which they now say is racist to do. No one is faster to expose media hypocrisy and lying in living color than MRC TV. MRC TV and the rest of the MRC team are still working tirelessly to bring the American people the truth. In the midst of the -the round-the-clock coronavirus coverage, there's even more media dishonesty to expose. The media are working even harder to blame Trump for everything, really. And that's why the MRC's work is needed now more than ever. So go to mrclevin.org, that's mrclevin.org, to learn more, mrclevin.org. I've been wondering where Barack Obama is. He's not lending a hand, is he? He's not saying to our president, the president of the United States, what can I do to help you, Mr. President? No. No, he's not. Where's Barack Obama? Well, I'll tell you where he is. This is from USA Today. Former President Barack Obama appeared to take a swipe at President Trump's Initial skepticism of the coronavirus pandemic, a rare rebuff for a president who tends not to weigh in on the work of other presidents. We've seen all too terribly, the we've seen all too terribly, that's his English, not mine, the consequences of those who denied warnings of a pandemic, Obama tweeted today without directly naming the president. We can't afford any more consequences of climate denial, all of us, especially young people, have uh, to demand better of our government at every level and vote this fall. Ladies and gentlemen, in late January, as uh, Costamitas pointed out on his program, uh, in his interview with Dr. Fauci, it was end of January, the 26th or the 29th, I don't recall, we played it yesterday. During his podcast, Dr. Fauci didn't think this was much more than a bad flu. 
the President of the United States is constantly misquoted saying that he said this is a hoax. He never ever said that. They take his use of the word hoax completely out of context. I want to talk about what the President has done and what I think about the President in this regard after the bottom of the hour. I hope you'll stick with me. I'll be right back. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. fanatic for the Constitution. Call him now at 877-381-3811. Do you wish that double chin would just disappear? Newsflash, ladies and gentlemen, people look at your jawline. It simply tells your age. Here's Robin from Lubbock, Texas. I put Genesel jawline cream on my neck two or three days ago. This is the best my neck has looked in 20 years. People told me my face looks young, and I'm blown away. You know, with Chamonix's MDL technology, Genesel's brand-new jawline treatment specially targets the delicate skin on your neck in the area for tight, healthy, younger-looking skin. You will see your mirror smile back at you, or 100% of your money back, no questions asked. Order Genesel's brand-new jawline treatment absolutely risk-free and get a second month for half the price. And for results in 12 hours or less, Genesel Immediate Effects is yours free. Order online. It's a good way to do it right now for an extra $30 discount. Online orders only get the $30 discount. Or you can call 800-SKIN-604, 800-SKIN-604. Online, Genesel.com, Genesel.com, get the $30 discount. Order now and shipping is also free. So give him a call at 800-SKIN-604 or go to Genesel.com. That's 800-SKIN-604 or go to Genesel.com. On behalf of this audience, and I'm sure even beyond this audience, I want to thank the President of the United States for his unbelievable leadership. I have some strong disagreements with what Washington's doing. Some of the advisors, a cabinet secretary, some of the members of Congress. But I have to tell you, and that's on the economic side, but I have to tell you, President Trump has conducted himself in ways that I think very few people can, let alone presidents. Every day he's grabbed this thing by the throat. He's tried to wrestle it to the ground. He has listened to the experts. He's listened to the medical experts. And he has to rely on them. And sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're not exactly right. And he's a man who is motivated 
to do the right thing. You can tell every one of these press conferences. Folks, they go on for over an hour. Sometimes almost two hours. He presents as much information as he can. He puts the experts up front to speak. I had Dr. Fauci on Life, Liberty, and Levin on my Fox show. He made it abundantly clear the president listens to his scientific advisors. He has ideas. When they shoot down the ideas, he moves on. The president has also pushed hard on the chloroquine uh, drug, and it's going to turn out that he was right. He's pushed hard on the FDA bureaucracy. He's pushed hard to move regulations out of the way. He's done an unparalleled job in working with the private sector, in working with governors, mayors. I don't know where the man has the time in the day or the energy. And when he speaks at these press conferences, despite the low IQ reporters and the Democrat Party reporters trying to trick him and so forth and so on, you can see how thorough his knowledge base is. It's incredible. This man was a developer. You can also see how he's grown in office. I'm extremely proud of this man. And how presidential he is. And when he dukes it out with the media and dukes it out with the Democrats, he's duking it out with them on their level because they're trying, they're trying to undermine his efforts. And also dispirit the American people. I've never seen anything like this. He wants to open up the economy as soon as possible, and they attack him. Then he pulls back from his Easter deadline because they give him information that he's talked about today and yesterday, and they attack him. You go to a website like Mediaite, you'll see day in and day out the trashing of the president, the trashing of his surrogates. Or on MSNBC, CNN, the same thing. These know-nothings who've accomplished nothing in their lives, who've contributed nothing to America. Don Lemon, as an example. What's that idiot's name? Lawrence, whatever his name is on MSNBC. All these people. O'Donnell. They haven't done a damn thing. And I also notice another thing. The president keeps his humor. Of course he gets annoyed at these clowns in the media. What's it? Send in the clowns? CNN sends in the clowns. MSNBC sends in the clowns. Apparently NPR, too. These aren't serious journalism organizations anymore. They've abandoned that. But even when you disagree with the president on on an aspect of this here and there, you can see he's trying to think these things through. He's He's trying to wrestle with them. He's trying to make the right decision. Look, I reject this extra $2 trillion. I just spent a whole hour talking about it. But I'm not here to sabotage the president. I'm here to praise the president. Because I'm truly impressed. How many presidents could have done this? Barack Obama? I don't want to say the Bushes, but there you go. And by the way, good men, don't get me wrong in the case of the Bushes. Both of them, good men. Bill Clinton, no way. 
Bill Clinton was always looking for an easy way out, nothing big. Well, the president didn't invite this. The president had a, an economy that was roaring ahead. He enjoyed his rallies. He enjoyed communication with the people. He enjoyed rubbing shoulders with the people. He had his agenda. It all came to an end. And what did he do? He took on this massive challenge like a leader. And that's what he's done. And I could not be more proud of him. I'll continue to give my opinion. I'll continue to try and press for what I think is the right outcome. I'm not talking about medical. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm looking at the data and I give my opinion. On the economic side, I'll continue to push against this Peter Navarro and Conrad Black and these other guys, these sort of big centralized government types, even though they deny it, they are what they are. Because I feel the president has to hear through me, the voice of millions and millions of people like you. Because we want him to make great decisions. We want him to be right. So at least we now see 184,183 cases of the virus and over 3,700 people have perished. And I will continue to criticize this, even with the words at least CNBC, NBC, MSNBC, Fox is really trying to do the right thing. That's obvious. But it's uh, the, the deaths. And this information is coming from the WHO, the CDC, Johns Hopkins and others. And they have no way of knowing exactly if somebody's dying from this virus, unless it's a, 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 a direct case. Okay, that guy was well, got the virus, and he died. The person had severe heart disease. Maybe they weren't going to make it in a month or anyway, and then they get the virus and die. Is that counted toward the virus or heart disease? You know, the CDC keeps these statistics. I'm just curious because nobody's telling me, and it doesn't say anything on their site. People are taking numbers from the site and just plopping it on the board. And I think that's misleading. Very misleading. Anyway, I wanted you to know, even though I disagree with the president and the treatment of GM, at least for one day, he talks actually very favorably of them now. And I understand he feels he had to sign that $2.2 trillion bill. After all, he's not a member of Congress. He has to sign it or veto it. <clears throat> I strongly object to any more massive spending of that sort. I really don't think many presidents could do much better, but it's still our responsibility as citizens to back him vigorously wherever we can and to raise questions if we have questions. But you'll notice, again, our objective isn't to sabotage the president. More like to counter the advice that he may be getting from some of his other people. That's all. I have a wonderful relationship with this man. Wonderful. And his family. They really are tremendous people. And they've been through a hell of a lot. And I, I couldn't be happier that he's there. Can you imagine if Hillary Clinton were there? What a disaster. 
What an absolute disaster. Let's take a call or two, Mr. Producer. I will work on getting my uh, call screen up. To whom shall I speak, uh, Mr. Producer? The great WABC, Bobby in Manhattan. Go! Hey, Mr. Mark, everybody's missing a big point. We're not paying China $550 billion a year in tariffs. We're not paying Mexico $550 billion a year in tariffs, whatever it was. That's $1 trillion right there every year. All right, all right, all right. Slow down a second. Please don't make excuses for out-of-control government and then tell me you're a conservative. What does one have to do with the other? I just told you the Federal Reserve is monopolizing now the capital markets. What does that have to do with anything you just said? Well, if we're not paying for NATO, That's no number more. one. Number two, you're paying the tariffs. I support the tariffs against China. China doesn't pay one cent during the tariffs. I know you've heard this. You pay the tariffs. A tariff is a price that the United States government puts on a product that is sent into the United States. It's not a price, a tax on China. So I favor tariffs against China because China's the enemy, not because I think it's that sensible. So you can keep saying stuff like this. One has nothing to do with the other. And your logic is we should massively increase tariffs all across the board as a way to offset uh, this profligate spending. But one has nothing to do with the other. Again, we're talking about the Federal Reserve now, crowding out the private capital market so the Federal Reserve will decide what companies live and what companies die. Is that the kind of federal government you want? No. I don't okay. Want to so it has nothing to do with tariffs. You can favor tariffs on China. The way it punishes China is it makes it harder for China to sell its goods into the United States. China doesn't pay the tariff. You do and I do. And you know what we should start doing? And I really believe this. And it's harder and harder. But maybe it should be easier and easier. Stop buying stuff from China as much as we can. They have monopolized a lot of stuff. Like, like many of you take drugs that are manufactured in China. If you stop taking them, you might croak. So I don't recommend that. But there are things you can do when it comes to clothing or when it comes to a part or when it comes to this or that. We the people, we don't need the government to tell us to do this stuff. We need to tell the government to do this sort of stuff, but we can do it ourselves. Anyway, so... A trillion dollars in tariffs, as you say, is a trillion dollars the American people pay if, in fact, those goods wind up in America. The tariff hits the product, not in China, but in America. And I know the president points that out, and he says, look how much money we are getting uh, from, these, uh, from these countries. I want you to keep something else in mind. Before this virus, we were running a $1.2 trillion deficit this year. Did you know that? You know what, Lisa? trillion. So the tariffs can't make up the difference when government's out of control. I want you to stand with me. Will you stand with me and say we don't need these massive spending bills that don't help the people? Would you please? Yes or no? All right, he's listening to the radio. Let's move on. Well, we can't. I got to take a break. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. CBS, NBC, and ABC television news networks or news programs 
uh, are not covering the presidential task force news conferences. They didn't cover tonight's. That shows you how much they care about this epidemic. Pandemic. Shows you how much information they want to provide to the American people. Free press, ladies and gentlemen. This is shocking. Shocking. Instead, we have to hear the the ideologically driven, partisan, snarky reporting of their phony reporters. Tell me, why do we have a so-called free press, ABC, NBC, uh, CBS, these networks, if they're not going to report on what we're told is the greatest crisis in a century, half a century, on a daily basis when the numbers are said to be changing? You know what this is? This is censorship. This is censorship by the media. By the men and women who are actually working on this at the top of the pyramid, the top of the government. Absolutely disgusting. So don't watch ABC, NBC, or CBS television networks. You can watch Fox and drive their ratings through the roof. And I'm not kidding. Or listen to my program. Homeowners are leaving a ton of money on the table because they're not refinancing to today's low rates. Make sure this isn't you. It's as easy as a 10-minute call to my friends at American Financing. And you can take advantage of a free, no-obligation mortgage review. There's no pressure. No upfront or hidden fees. It's a no-brainer. And it's a quick and easy way to see if you can add hundreds, maybe thousands, back to your monthly budget, all without starting your term over. So if you have 27 years or 24 years on your mortgage, you can choose those terms. There's no going back to a 30-year loan. Because you shouldn't pay interest for years you don't need. And you know what else? You may even be able to postpone two mortgage payments. Now more than ever, you should check out my friends at American Financing. It's a way to save money without even trying. And you're creating even greater upfront savings. So don't put a refinance off any longer. Rates won't stay this low forever. This, I can assure you, because the laws of economics, with all this massive spending and deficits are going to drive interest rates one day through the roof. So call 888-900-1828. That's 888-900-1828. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing, NMLS 182334, www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Some in the media, Rachel Madcow, Donnie Lemon, and others have been urging the networks not to cover the president's task force press conferences each day. And other networks have buckled. They're not covering it. Tremendously important information, at least to analyze whether you agree with it or not. It's an amazing thing. Here's, here's how they can get those networks to cover it. Somehow wrap it into the word Russia and leak it to them, Mr. Producer. Then they'll print it on the front page. Just say we're having a press conference on Russia and leak stuff and make sure the word Russia is in there somewhere. Then the New York Slimes, the Washington Compost, NBC, CBS, and ABC, they'll run with it, baby. All right. They're a disgrace. So much in the media are a disgrace. They're a great disservice to this magnificent country. I'll be right back. 
from the Westwood One Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, this final hour of the podcast is sponsored exclusively by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we care about, faith, family, and freedom. Thank you for listening, and please support AMAC. And you can become a member at amac.us slash join. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post... Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, So I was doing my research for the program went back into February to be precise February 29, 2020 a piece in the New York Post China officials knew of the coronavirus in December ordered cover up report says Chinese scientists knew about the coronavirus and its deadly effects as early as December but were ordered by government officials to suppress the evidence according to a report In late December, several uh, uh, genomic companies tested samples from sick patients in Wuhan, the center of the coronavirus outbreak, and noticed alarming similarities between their illness and the 2002 SARS virus, the Sunday Times of London reported, citing Chinese business news site Kexengloba. The researchers alerted Beijing of their findings, and on January 3, received a gag order from China's National Health Commission with instructions to destroy the samples. Rather than hunkering down to contain the virus, Wuhan officials went ahead with their annual potluck dinner for 40,000 families. The alleged cover-up continued when representatives from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on January 8 visited Wuhan, where officials intentionally withheld information that hospital workers have been infected by patients, a telltale sign of contagion. News of the virus's highly contagious nature didn't surface publicly until January 20. Wuhan was locked down and a mass quarantine ordered three days later. The press wants to know about a slow start. The press asks almost nothing about what China's done. Just don't call it the China virus. Whatever you do. And over at National Review, the senator who saw the coronavirus coming, Tom Cotton. I'm a big fan of Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton was both the first and loudest voice in Congress to sound the alarm about the looming pandemic. While others slept, Cotton was warning anyone who would listen that the coronavirus was coming for America. On January 22, one day before the Chinese government began a quarantine of Wuhan to contain the spread of the virus, the Arkansas senator sent a letter to Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar encouraging the Trump administration to consider banning travel between China and the United States and warning that the communist regime could be covering up how dangerous the disease really was. That same day, he amplified his warnings on Twitter 
and in an appearance on the radio program of Fox and Friends host Brian Kilmeade. At the time, the Senate impeachment trial was dominating the news cycle. The trial, which lasted from January 16 to February 5, had even blotted out coverage of the Democratic presidential primary in the days leading up to the Iowa caucuses. You see, let me just stop here a moment. The incredible damage Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Adam Schiff, and the others did to this country throughout the last three years, and the pinnacle of which was the last couple of months, is incalculable. The tremendous damage they did is incalculable. Cotton's public and private warnings became more urgent the last week of January in a January 28 letter to the Secretaries of State, Health and Human Services, and Homeland Security. He noted that, quote, no amount of screening at airports will identify a contagious but asymptomatic person afflicted with the coronavirus and called for an immediate evacuation of Americans in China and a ban on all commercial flights between China and the United States. Cotton first spoke to the president about the virus the next day. I guess that would be January 29th. The Arkansas Gazette reported that he missed nearly three hours of the impeachment trial while he was discussing the matter with Trump administration officials. The outbreak was, quote, the biggest and most important story in the world, unquote, he said in a Senate hearing that week. What tipped the senator off to the true nature of the threat? Why was the, he first and the loudest voice in Congress to sound the alarm about the looming pandemic? In an interview with National Review, Cotton is quick to point out that he doesn't have a background in science or public health, but he does have two eyes. As a longtime China hawk, he found his interest peaked early on by reports primarily from East Asian news sources. Two things struck me about China's response, he says. First, their deceit and their dishonesty going back to early December. And second, the extreme draconian measures they had taken. By the third week of January, they had more than 75 million people on lockdown. They were confined to their homes and apartments. Otherwise, they were arrested. Sounds like some of our states, doesn't it, Mr. Reducer? And the District of Columbia. In some cases, the front doors of those buildings were welded shut. All schools had shut down. Hong Kong had banned flights from the mainland. These are the kind of extreme draconian measures that you would only take in a position of power in China if you are greatly worried about the spread of this virus. On January 31, the president announced a ban on entry to foreign travelers who'd been in China in the previous two weeks, while allowing Americans and permanent residents to continue to travel back and forth between the two countries. The measure was not as stringent as Cotton's call for a ban on all commercial flights, but Cotton points out that the president did not have many advisors encouraging him to shut down travel. Advisors who were supportive tended to be national security aides, he adds, while most of his economic and public health advisors were ambivalent at best about the travel ban. He says, I, continued the, uh, I, com- I commend the president greatly for ultimately making the right decision, contrary to what the so-called experts were telling him. Of course, while the travel restriction may have bought the United States time, that time was largely squandered, he writes. Who is this? John McCormick, of course. 
by the catastrophic failure of the CDC and FDA to ramp up testing for the coronavirus in the United States. This is something that needs a little bit more study than a one-liner like this. That is, what tests exactly would they have used? What tests would exactly they have on their shelves for a virus they're utterly unfamiliar with? Did they have tests that they could use? Even if they weren't defective, did they know what the test should look like? I don't think so. In phone calls and meetings in early February, Cotton says he encouraged the administration to be very aggressive and very flexible when it came to testing and diagnosis protocols. And it goes on. So Tom Cotton has been right about China for a very, very long time. And some of the other senators have finally joined his bandwagon. But there's no question he's been the leader on this. Uh, And he was out of the box very, very quickly on this. And he deserves credit for it. Now, why does he deserve credit for it? Because he was a lone voice for a long time. That's why. Now, I want to have another conversation with you about the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. seems like the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin is now the, the czar over the American private economy if not in name, in practice. And I'm troubled by this. He's a liberal Democrat from Goldman Sachs and also lately, or before he was appointed by way of Hollywood. He was involved in Hollywood pictures too. And I know he's a confidant of the president, that's fine, but I'm still no fan of this guy. There's another piece in the same site, National Review, by Jonathan Tobin. The Iran deal lives on. I want you to hear this because I know this was fought in the administration, but Mnuchin wanted to continue this, and he won. So the Iran deal lives on thanks to the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. Stephen Mnuchin's recent besting of Mike Pompeo, I'm a big fan of Mike Pompeo, on whether to waive sanctions on Iran's nuclear program raises questions about the Trump administration's resolve vis-a-vis Iran. This this week marked the end of a 60-day waiver on U.S. sanctions against European, Russian, and Chinese companies operating at Iran's civilian nuclear plants. But despite the strenuous objections of Secretary of State Pompeo, the State Department announced it will renew the waivers. Now, some of you might be saying, and I haven't read this article completely, but I'm going to read it to you, Well, Mark, there's a humanitarian disaster in Iran. This, uh, these sanctions we have in place does not prevent providing humanitarian aid to the people of Iran, just so you know. It has nothing to do with that. The statement emphasized President Trump's commitment to preventing Iran from ever obtaining a nuclear weapon, and it speaks of renewing restrictions. That's the goal, to stop them from getting nukes. But this is deceptive because the restrictions of the United States has repeatedly granted exemptions to them for all companies helping the Iranian nuclear program are a mechanism for allowing continued business activity that would otherwise be illegal under America's sanctions on virtually all business with or in Iran. In essence, renewing these restrictions, as Mnuchin insisted, which the U.S. then waives, that is what Mnuchin insisted, waiving them, is a way to preserve one last element of Obama's nuclear deal from which the United States withdrew in all respects. But the decision was a clear victory for our Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, who's really getting a lot of victories for the left, and a setback for Pompeo, 
who's been outspoken in his view that the administration should maintain the pressure on Iran despite sympathy for the country generated by, its hit, by, by being hit hard uh, by the coronavirus. In an administration known for its infighting, he writes, and diversity of views, a skirmish over an issue such as Iran's sanctions is hardly unusual. But with Mnuchin's view on sanctions apparently winning the day, it's clear the President Trump's ear, it's clear that he has President Trump's ear on the issue. Too bad. A campaign to pressure Trump to loosen sanctions on Iran is one support from Europe as well as from alumni of the Obama administration, including former Deputy National Secretary Ben Rhodes, and from mainstream media outlets that supported the nuclear deal, such as the New York Times. As Pompeo's pointed out, however, there are no U.S. sanctions on medical or humanitarian aid to Iran. In fact, America has even offered to help the Iranians cope with the COVID-19, but Tehran has refused American aid. But the main problem with the arguments for easing Iran's sanctions during the pandemic is that softening our stance toward the regime won't help ordinary Iranians, but it will be a windfall for the rulers. See, they take the money. The rulers take the money. It subsidizes the regime. It doesn't help the people. In a tweet, Pompeo shared a video of Iranian President Hussein Rouhani speaking about the regime's goal, which is cash for its leaders, quote, unquote, cash for its leaders. I guess he should have sent this to the Treasury Secretary. The rogue Islamist regime has been tottering in the past year as its subjects have protested the leaders who prioritized funding foreign terror and nuclear ambitions over the needs of ordinary Iranians. The Iranian people took to the streets last December by the tens of thousands to demonstrate against the theocrats who oppressed them. Thousands were shot by the regime's Praetorian Guard, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which also controls much of the nation's economy. Any sanctions relief will be a gift to the regime and its military and the foreign terror groups it funds. For decades, Iran has funneled its oil wealth into a nuclear program whose main goal is the domination of Iran's Sunni Muslim neighbors and the ability to threaten Israel's very existence. If the Trump administration allows the civilian component of that program to continue functioning with foreign help, it will undermine its entire policy agenda. It would also worry the Arab states in Israel, which felt abandoned by Obama. And it goes on. It was a huge mistake, ladies and gentlemen, to retain the waivers. A huge mistake. Because that money will pump up the greatest terrorist regime in Iran. I I don't understand this. The administration tells us time and time again, the president and all the others, that this is the greatest promoter of terrorism in the world. And these sanctions are related to their terror activity and their nuclear program. Not to the well-being of their people. And so now we just deliver them, if you will, in effect, an enormous amount of money so they can sustain themselves. I don't know why. I don't know who made Steve Mnuchin the Secretary of State. But apparently he thinks money should go to all kinds of people people who don't deserve it, people overseas, a terrorist regime, that the Federal Reserve should run the private capital market. I'm sure he did very well at Goldman Sachs, man of the people, 
I'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine, full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead, A-M-A-C dot U-S. Hi, Mr. Producer. Susan Rice with Yahoo Finance today. She obviously has an issue uh, with truth-telling. She's unencumbered with such a thing, and she did with the uh, Benghazi matter, went on five networks and lied through her teeth. But you'll notice that the Democrats and the media and the Obama officials, they all sound the same. Cut six, Mr. Producer, go. We still, though test testing is ramped up, of course, we don't have enough. There are plenty of people who still can't get tests. Uh, and we clearly don't have enough masks and ventilator and other uh, protective gear to keep our healthcare workers and our first responders safe. And so that is a profound failing. And I, I think the reality is, Andy, that as a result, we will have more Americans die than would have, need to be, would have needed to be the case. Our economy will take uh, a harder hit and will take longer to recover than would have been the case had we been optimally prepared. So I assume she's trashing Andrew Cuomo, right? No, she's not. She's trashing the president. She doesn't even know who's responsible for what, but she has an opinion. She has no idea who's responsible for what. And the president is right when he says, you know, these attacks really aren't on me. They're on my medical experts. They're on the head of FEMA, the head of the FDA, the head of the Army Corps of Engineers. She's attacking them. I'm taking their advice. I'm giving out the orders. She's attacking all of them. She's also attacking people who are allies, but she won't admit it. Who's responsible for ventilators? The governors. Who's responsible for having enough masks in the hospitals? Well, for one, the hospitals. I didn't know that was part of the Constitution for the president. And as we pointed out last night, FEMA didn't even exist until 1979. There was no FEMA before 1979. Cut seven, go. Thank God for the governors and the mayors and those who are stepping up and taking this our crisis as seriously as it deserves to be taken. But at the end of the day, there isn't a substitute for leadership coming okay, out Okay, again, she has no idea what she's talking about. It is the job of the governors to, quote-unquote, step up. They're doing their jobs. They wanted the power to control their hospitals and health care and the number of beds and ventilators and MRIs and CTs and all the rest of it. So when you have a crisis, 
Well, you have to look at the governors and ask. Moreover, constitutionally, it is they who have the power, presumptively, not with absolute certainty, to take some of the actions they're taking. The President of the United States doesn't have those powers. He doesn't have the power to to tell you to stay in your home and you're not an essential human being. Susan Rice is utterly as ignorant as always. I'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead, A-M-A-C dot U-S. America's Constitutional Convention, The Mark Levin Show. Call in now, 877-381-3811. You know, please stick with this program all throughout. I think you should, and I'll tell you why. I'm not patting myself on my head or my back. I've been talking about my concerns about civil liberties and the Constitution, what these governors are doing, what some are pushing the president to do. We've been talking about this for some time now. It's been very lonely out there. And now you're starting to hear others begin to talk about it, aren't you, Mr. Producer? Pointing out that some of these governors have kind of lost their heads. They kind of like power. I also pointed out the other day that they're letting real criminals out the front, at the back door, while they would take really good tax-paying American citizens and push them in jail through the front door. We talked about that. So I want to thank you for being here. It's very important. One issue after another after another, we raise it. I come under attack by the hard left, and then finally we clear the field, and some of my brothers and sisters in media start to raise these issues. It's very, very important what we're trying to do here. And it's thanks to you, the size of the audience. That's why we're trying to push back on any idea of another massive bill. I'm afraid there's going to be one. But the people in Washington, of all stripes, they need to know what we think. And I think they do. Let's go to Alfred Clarksburg, Maryland, the great WMAL. Go. Yes, Alfred, Hello? how may I help you? Yeah, my, I, I'm calling because I've been trying to get hold of someone uh, I was listening to your comments about the uh, v- validity or lack of validity or bias of the data that we're getting on this coronavirus. No, I, the- I didn't say bias. What I said was it, 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 it's giving me a, a sort of whiplash because this figure of 1.5 to 2.2 million, that's brand new. 
Uh, I know people can say, well, the data show us and the Italian models show us and so forth. That's an enormous figure. I don't believe it because there would never be a situation where there's no mitigation. And I spent a lot of time explaining exactly what I meant. I'm not saying people are lying or they're biased. I'm just saying at all. What I am saying is uh, when they say follow the science, it becomes complicated. If I followed the science six, eight, nine weeks ago, I wouldn't have bought masks. Go ahead. Denominator. In other words, what I'm saying is that the data that's being generated. And you're a virologist, right? Correct. That's correct. All right. Go ahead. And the data has been gen- – and I worked with Debbie Briggs and, and Bob Redfield for 12 years, so I know them pretty well. You worked with them where? They, he, they were young majors in the Army, and That's I right. had my own company after I had left the NIH, and we did all their research on the HIV with them. Well, I know you're the real deal then because she retired as a colonel, I think. Anyway, That's, go ahead. That is correct. And go ahead. And what I'm Thing is, listening to Debbie this more this afternoon, she was talking that they had about forty or fifty thousand assays sitting out there, and they are not they're not being used. What they need to do, they need to get a cohort of people, non-biased, that is, of a group that's not necessarily been selected because they have symptoms, and do that in New York, in California, in Michigan and get valid data and use the assays that are sitting there because right now the only assays that are really worthwhile <coughs> are those of people coming into hospital to make sure that you're, they are- you're saying you're saying there's a bias because basically the focus is on the people who are already ill or said to be ill or who claim to be ill but the population's much larger than that, and so the data should be much broader than that. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Mm. And now that they have an excess of, of uh, tests from what Debbie says, they should start using that by selecting cohorts in these major areas and determining what really the number of people that are infected, the number of people of that who are not infected, the number of people who were infected, and get a bigger general database, you're saying. That's the only way you're going to come and, and, and by the way, that time should be coming soon because if Abbott has tests that take five minutes, you can get an answer very quickly. Um, you're right. That's the only way you're going to have a 100% accurate number. And, not, and the other thing, once they have that, by that time they should have a license test, which are blood tests to determine how many people have developed antibodies. Then you can really see how many actually were involved in the and, and why is that important? Because it is important. Because people with antibodies, they're saying maybe you can use their plasma and so forth. But the point is you're going to know what percentage of the population, unless this thing mutates in some significant way, is safe. Because exactly, for them, it's over. It's done. Exactly right. And by, by not doing that, because first of all, the PCR tests that are now, they're now using only will detect if you have a virus or part of a virus. It won't detect if you had one, correct? Right. It will not detect it. If you, if you have come past the disease and are cured and have recovered, you're not going to pick them up. You need to pick it up by serology. And, and, and I don't mean to be rude because we're running out of time. Wouldn't this be very, very important to know, certainly in the near future? I mean, we see on TV at least the number of people who have the virus, at least the number of people who have died from the virus. Let me ask you this. You're an expert. 
they don't really know how many people have died from this virus. Maybe the person died from heart disease and the virus was just the last thing to push them over the edge. Absolutely right. And that's uh, that really, and it scares everybody. I mean, the data that's being generated, I mean, it's being done in good faith. I'm not criticizing that at all. What I'm basically saying, we need more data, we need non quote biased, but I'm not the bias that you think I'm saying. It's you're not, not you're not saying political bias, you're saying it's built in bias. And you know, Dr. Fauci said today, the model is only as good as the information and the assumptions we make. And that's your point, isn't it? Absolutely right. The other thing I want to point out, which they should start telling people, is that even though we're trying to stretch out this peak so that we have a level because we don't want to overload the hospital system, right. that in the long run, that might stretch out and make it a second peak as because not enough people may have been infected and have recovered. So therefore, you have still a fairly large, naive or non-infected population that may show a second peak. And I think in other words, let me just lay it out. In other words, what you're saying, I'm just a pedestrian. What you're saying is, as many people who can go through this process and become immune or, 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 or what have you, the sooner the better. Absolutely. And also, from an economic perspective, you keep spreading this thing out and keep telling people to stay home. You're not going to have ventilators. You're not going to have hospital beds. You're not going to have hospitals. You're not going to have a currency. You're not going to have doctors either. Yeah. Listen, you're so, terrific, uh, doctor. So may I ask you, where do you work? Well, I'm retired. I'm 88 yeah. years old. Oh, I, my I goodness. I was in the NIH for 21 years. I was in the Air Force for nine years working on biological defense programs. In the do, you, do you mind if my producer gets your phone number? I would love to talk to you off the line because actually that would be a hell of a lot better. Yes. All right, Alfred, do not hang up. Mr. Producer, make sure you get Alfred's number. All right? Thank you very much. This man knows what he's talking about. Get Alfred's number, Justin. Don't forget. Let's continue. Eli, Canada, Sirius Satellite, go! Mr. Levine, I love your show. I I call all the way from Toronto. Thank you, Toronto. Yes, I have to say two things. First of all, after this is all over, you have to come and see what we received from our prime minister. A complete shutdown, the whole country shut down. You can't even uh, breathe there without the government. So Trudeau shut the whole country down? Yes, he did. He sh- we shut down the borders. We-, we can't even fly out. We can't even fly inside the country. We can't work. I'm a low-income earner. I don't even work. My father is working much more than I am, and he's a truck driver. He delivers all this food. I just borrow yeah. some food from him. Yeah. Uh, all right. I wanted to say... Yes. 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 Go ahead. Everything that happens within uh, the governor's reach, when they say they don't have money, but the government has to pay for everything, everything, is I, there is a perfect solution? Stop, just like him and any other government which is outside of the United States jurisdiction. Stop sending money. All right, thank you for your call. Quite right. Well, the mayor of Nashville has informed the citizens of Nashville they can expect a massive property tax increase. Now, 
You're going to see this throughout cities and states in this country. And you need to ask a question before you bend over backwards. In the case of Cuomo, and I'm going to keep asking this question so that all the hosts on TV and radio are asking the question. Why in 2015 didn't he buy more ventilators, instead go with solar panels? Why isn't he confronted with this question? It's the first state to institute the certificate of need law that I've spent so much time on, which means they took control of all private decisions in hospitals in the hospital industry on how many beds they were going to have. I watch these daily press briefings by this Cuomo. I can barely stand it. And by the way, the people in New York seem to love this guy. They're slobbering all over him. According to a poll, he has 87% positive rating because he sits there. Look, he does some good things. There's no question about it. But what you get out of most of this is, I don't have enough uh, ventilators. Somebody give them to me. I don't have enough masks. Somebody give them to me. I don't have enough beds. Somebody give them to me. And nobody says, Governor, okay, you're in a pinch now. The federal government's breaking its back to accommodate all your wishes as well as the needs in Los Angeles and Seattle and Dallas and uh, New Orleans and, uh, and Chicago and Detroit and New Jersey as a state, California. And so. At least why weren't you better prepared? Why don't you have more ventilators? Why don't you have more beds? The answer is he blew it. The answer is he wasn't thinking about a pandemic. The answer is he wasn't planning ahead. He was too busy playing politics and redistributing wealth and promoting abortion on demand even after the baby's born, in my view, infanticide. Just as your United States Congress, you have a right to ask your congressman and senator, where the hell were they? What plans did they put in place? Why were they dithering? with one phony attack on the president after another. They spent months, months, on hearings about Russia, which they knew were baloney. They spent months on impeaching this president over a fraudulent issue. Nancy Pelosi waited a month till she sent her unconstitutional charges to the Senate. A month. Precious time. They're holding hearings. All we were talking about is whether... John Bolton is going to be a, a witness, or two or three other people, and so forth and so on. Endless subpoenas being issued. All this time wasted by the federal government. All the time and money wasted by some, so many of these state governments. And now, of course, we rely on them. And now I even have callers and people posting on my social sites, in a small minority, of course, supporting massive government control, massive government spending, even though the vast majority of us doesn't go to the people who need help. Shocking. I'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. 
More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. The Spanish flu reminder of 1918, 1918, 1919, it's estimated 500 million people or one-third of the human beings on the face of the earth were infected with the virus. 50 million worldwide deaths. 675,000 in the United States of America. Now look at that model. Look at that model. Now, of course, some of you live in these states with these great governors like Cuomo, Murphy, what's the idiot in California, whatever his name is, I can't remember. And you're really not allowed to own a gun. They have so many regulations, it's almost impossible, despite the Bill of Rights and despite the Supreme Court ruling. That's unfortunate. I'm living in a state that's headed in that direction, Virginia. Believe it or not, Virginia one of the great birthplace areas of America. It's disgusting. I'm glad you're here, folks. I'm not going to take any more calls, no more information. I try to bring to you the best information I have, not just reading off websites or regurgitating what you're being told on television. I'm thinking this through with you. I'm experiencing this with you. And I want us to stick together, all the Vinites, and we'll meet here every evening, 6 p.m. Eastern Time and uh, 3 p.m. Pacific Time and all times in between. And if you can't, don't forget our podcast. You can listen to that, too. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, doctors, nurses, scientists, experts, all the people who are helping us, truckers, grocery clerks, all of you folks. Fast food, you got it. God bless each and every one of you and more. And I'll see you right here tomorrow. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.